G'day Magpie Army and welcome to the first episode of our as yet unnamed new podcast, which some of us would like to call Backroom Banter. Each week we'll take you inside the club for a chat about how the Mighty Pies are going and discuss the big issues in footy and even a few big issues from outside the footy bubble. I'm Adam McNichol, Head of Digital Content here at Collingwood, and I'm joined firstly by Stephen Riley, GM of Media and PR. Riles, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Adam. Also in the studio, the one and only Marcus Wagner, our Performance and Strategy Manager. Wags, welcome. Thank you, Adam. Riley, clearly a man of few words, and eyebrows were raised when you when you uh, introduced that title, because I believe Riles had a different option for our title. What was that, Riles? Yes, eyebrows were raised, uh, backroom banter. It's been <laughs> snuck in without my knowledge, so straight away I'm on the back foot here. I'm, I'm clearly underprepared uh, or I'm being deliberately kept in the dark. There's a conspiracy afoot. BRB, Riles, BRB. But tell us, what, what was your counter title to, to this? Well, I did have uh, some thoughts. We had, uh, I quite liked a... Uh, uh, on the magpie theme, a, a flock of fanciful <laughs> Collingwood ideas or uh, uh, something equally ridiculous, maybe the football fountain. Um, I even had a graphic in mind with uh, Jock McHale's head with ideas pouring out of it like the, the master coach that he was. Um, alas, anyhow, uh, I've been... Uh, defi- uh, alas, so Riles. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to concede on the, on the minor battles. It's the, it's the war that I've got to win. BRB, Adam, we are away. We are away. Well, backroom banter, football fountain, whatever it may be. Now, gentlemen, it's time for our big topic of this episode, and it's one of Scott Pendlebury's favourites, the idea of playing more games each season. Wags, I want to start with you. What are your thoughts on extending the season out to perhaps even as many as 26 games? Well, I love that idea, Adam, for, for multiple reasons. I think um, there are a few conditions associated with it. Obviously, the, the load on the players would go through the roof on a 26-round on a season. So the thing that ties probably in with the, the longer season is the, is the shorter game, which has obviously also been topical at the moment. But I think with the, with the shortened game, say 16 minutes plus time on, that we saw in round one, which... Personally, I thought it was really quite um, quite effective. It didn't impact the scoring too much. It probably raised the uh, actual scoring rate. Uh, the players were fit and firing at the end of the game and felt great during the week. So I think to introduce a 26-round season um, would need to be linked to a, to a shortened game as well. Now, Rolls, I know the AFL at this stage is saying that there's not necessarily going to be shortened games next year. How likely would something like this be at this point? Uh, I think there are a number of ways to look at this and high performance is clearly one, which WAGS has sort of spoken about. I think um, if you're looking at it from uh, the position of Foxtel and, and Channel 7, if you're a broadcaster, right now that 26-week season is four more weeks of matches, which... Um, uh, is extra content for them. Um, and I think we're talking about removing the pre-season. In order to extend the season, the proper season out, we would remove the pre-season, which is, um, uh, as I understand it, a burden for the broadcasters. It, 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 it doesn't particularly rate all that well. It costs them money to, to produce it. Um, so there's a saving there for them. 
uh, a financial saving by removing the pre-season competition, but also some uh, uh, the possibility of generating more revenue out of the season proper. If you think about it from a uh, from a, another angle, again, uh, um, our players train for four to five months. Swags, it's you know, that, you know depending on when you finish your season, of course. But but they'd be training, you know, and and. They come back in November, say, November, December, January, February, March. You've got five months in effect of training out of which the game generates no revenue basically. Um, no one pays to, to come to games. There's no corporate revenue out of practice matches. Um, there's no, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exercise in preparing for the season proper. But if we were to come back... Um, to a very short, a shortened pre-season, let's say it's two months, you come back at the start of January and you train all of January and February and start playing matches in March, then um, we're getting more money out of the game as well, you know, out of what was a fallow period. Um, you get crowds, you get crowd revenue. And these are things that are, are front of mind right now because we're, we're, we're still working our way out of a, out of a um, well, primarily a health crisis, but... but a financial crisis that's been delivered by that health crisis. So I think um, from a broadcast perspective, I can see value in it and sense in it, I think, and appeal. I think from um, in terms of generating more revenue and making uh, more money out of what the players do, um, it makes sense. Um, it really comes down to, you know, I think, um, the, the ability to factor in um, things like, breaks for players, um, the toll on them. But as Wags was saying, if, it's, if we're taking 20 minutes a week, say, out of a game, five minutes a quarter, that's 80 minutes a month. That's effectively a game. So across a 26-week season, you're not playing anymore. Um, so I think we would get the PA potentially who would be obviously concerned about lengthening the season and the welfare of the players, but you could – on those grounds, you're not asking them to do any more physically. Um, so, and the other thing I would say, and Wags, perhaps you can jump in here, players want to play. Do you think they would rather play a, an extra four matches or train, run their guts out in the heat of February? I, I'm tipping, or, or in March, that they're going to want to play games of footy. That's what they, that's what they train to do. And that's, what the, that's what the players have heard Scott's comments have all supported. They want to play. But I think the, the caveat here is um, the ability to open up five-day breaks which is, is pivotal because the, the toll on the body is not as great as a, as a full-length game. Uh, Five-day breaks be- can become, I guess, more, more the norm and, and written into the CBA, which has the knock-on effect of opening up a, a time slot for every single game. So we'd have no double-up games. So you'd have Thursday night football, Friday night football, four games on Saturday and three games on Sunday or two games on Sunday and one on Monday. I think each game having its own time slot, Riles, surely is attractive to the broadcaster as well because I know sometimes when I'm home Saturday night, you've got two cracking games on and you're toggling between the two. I think that's, as a, as a kind of sporting public, we love being able to see every game and mm. we sometimes don't have time to, to catch up during the week. So why not give every game its time slot? No, I agree. I, I've never understood why on a Saturday night I've got to make a choice or flick between games constantly to, to be across those two matches. Why do they compete... Um, for audience share, I don't. I've never understood that. I think Thursday night's an absolute winner. I think, uh, you know, I think it's established that we've had enough of a sample size now to understand that it works. Um, and uh, Monday, 
I think Monday's an interesting concept. I'd love to see it work. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why. One is that I think the, the game eats itself alive at times. It, it consumed with all the things off the field in the absence of actual play. And I reckon if we gave people football five days a week, um, spread the, 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 the week, weekly round from, you know, across from Thursday to Monday, it only gives us sort of a couple of days of mop-up analysis, post that before we've got another game. I think we've seen the benefit of that in other sports around the world where there's, and, and I don't like comparing us to other sports, we're unique and I love a lot of the unique traits uh, and traditions of our game, but I, I do think that um, uh, if we could do that, it would uh, relieve some of the, the pressure to find a, a yarn that's not there that, that creates uh, difficulties for clubs and the game, the industry itself, if, if we're all focused on the game or a little bit more. Uh, the other thing is I think a Monday game um, is going to present a problem for uh, attendance so I think that needs to be thought through. You wouldn't necessarily play, I don't think, a Richmond-Collingwood match at the G on a Monday night. If you play it on the Thursday or Friday night or a Saturday night, Saturday afternoon, whatever you choose, you're going to get 80,000, let's say. I think you're going to get 80,000 on a Monday night. Um, it's too early in the week. That the, the, the routine of most people's lives is to settle in earlier in the week, get the week set up, have a break from the weekend, the... Um, but that's not to say that some games that perhaps don't draw as well and, um, or um, uh, might only draw a, a, a crowd of 25, 30... If you could find a boutique stadium to host some of these Monday night games where you do not need a huge crowd to create an atmosphere, it could be a really good spectacle nonetheless. Um, the, the problem, Wags, was probably... We're talking, therefore, about a, a big club, potentially, so-called big club going to play in a, 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 a smaller club on their turf. So you draw a huge television audience to it um, and you only need 20,000 in the stadium. So Metricon, say, for argument's sake, you've got 15,000 at Metricon, you've got, a, you've got an atmosphere. And I reckon that would work really well. Uh, could be a great television product without compromising attendance too greatly. And if, if you do do the Monday night, say, a boutique game on the Gold Coast, what this structured change of the structure of the fixture with the shortened games allows for is, is double-headed travel. So mm. we could play Gold Coast on Monday night at Metricon, stay in Queensland, mm. and then play Brisbane on Friday night at um, Friday night or Saturday night at um, at the Gabba, probably more Saturday night. So you have these little tours, mini tours every time, which gives you efficiencies. You don't have to travel as much. You're still only away for six, seven days. Great for supporters who travel because they can make a make a real trip out of it. So go up to the Gold Coast on Saturday, watch the Pies on Sunday, stay around in Queensland, and then go watch the Pies again in Brisbane at the Gabba a week later. I think that's that opens up really great opportunities. Probably we're, we're lucky we don't travel much, but if I'm West Coast or Frio, and you say, okay, you can play double headers two weeks in a row in Melbourne, it means you only have to travel five or six times. I reckon they'll jump at that. I think that's what the five-day, six-day break opens up without kind of hindering you too much from a physical perspective because you haven't had the demands of the game. So the players recover quicker, they're ready to go, which means you can cram a few more games in close succession. So I, I see this is where it all feeds in together, I think. And my big bugbear as a football supporter is the buys. I, I hate the buys. Um, mm. Ruins my super coach. 
I hate, I always <laughs> fluff away my trades early and then I've got nothing to do during the buy. So the thing with having five-day breaks or, uh, sorry, not five-day breaks, but having games Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday is it opens up 10-day breaks. So teams could have their CBA allotted break. So uh, for those who don't know, the AFLPA stipulate that each team has to have a four-day break in, in the middle of the season. You could play Thursday, go into your four-day break and then play the following following Sunday or Monday and there's your nine to ten day break giving the players what they need but not having a buy and I think that's a that's a really big kind of bonus to this structured fixture you also take away probably the pre the end of season buy before the finals because you probably won't need it because the players are fresher um, so you just have a nice clean 26 round season with nine games per round with nine slots per game so it looks good to me, Ross. So what does it do for the fixture? How would it, it – are we saying that it would create a more – you know, take us closer to, to a fairer fixture? I, I think so. I think any, any time you're playing more games is going to kind of even out the fixture a little bit. I think it's never going to be equal unless we play each other twice, and that's something we can't avoid. So what this probably does do by having 26 games is the top eight from the previous year play each other twice. That's – that's, a, that's great for broadcasters, great for mm. quality of games, but also creates a equal handicapping. So we're treating it more like the Melbourne Cup here. Um, what it means is then the bottom, bottom 10 teams uh, potentially play more games against each other and only play a couple of the top, top teams twice. And so I think that gets a level of handicapping into the draw, gives you the good games, but also if you're a top eight side, you know your double up games are going to be against other top eight clubs. So why, what, if I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate, why wouldn't we do it? What are the impediments in the way of, of, of this concept? Just Can we think of any? Well, the, or have we the solved, one, the, solved one, the, the, the problem? Well, the one obviously is inertia in the way we've always gone about things, which shouldn't be a factor, but it is. People have set in the ways of what they know when it comes to football. This doesn't change the fabric of the game at all, really, when it comes down to rules and how the game's played. Um, that stays the same, and I think that's pivotal. Uh, it does shorten the game, which I know there has been some feedback against that, but by giving supporters more games, I think that's the counter. So I think if you shorten the games and play 22 rounds, that's not viable because that's just taking football away from the people. By adding four games, that's two home games that the supporters get to go to, which I think is um, a great result. And um, the, the, the big barrier, I think, would be access to grounds in March, as it always is. I think that's a, we play on cricket grounds. It'd have to be um, some serious negotiations going in to make sure the MCG was available for the first week of March, because that's where you're going to play your big games and draw the crowds. The weather's going to be great. Um, get past that, I guess, the barrier of the grounds, and you're, um, you're halfway home, I think, Ross. Well, I, I can't see that happening. I think that's going to be a difficult one to overcome. Make it happen, Ross. Come on, you're a man of power. <laughs> Yeah, oh, well, to finish, right, the only thing I would add is that the, fixture, the uh, access to grounds is going to be a problem. I can't see cricket conceding March. Um, that, that is, you know, finals time for the Shield, for late-season late internationals. Um, I think that would problem, be problematic, but we've got Marvel. We're talking two weeks, uh, Yes, but cricket, cricket feels as if it's... The poor relation in this, in, in certainly in this town, and and that is Melbourne, and uh, and in the southern states to an extent, and feels that it's it's constantly under threat from football. 
Um, uh, they were loath, in fact, spoke about not giving up the MCG in October this year um, f to, to retain the, the T20 World Cup. Um, I think they had the Women's World Cup was at the G or finals at the G as were the world was about to close down due to COVID. So, um, uh, but we do have Marvel, we do have potentially Optus, We've, we would have Giants Stadium, we, we could utilise Tasmania, Geelong, um, uh, there are there are other possibilities. Um, is it more likely to eat, eat into October? Is that a more plausible? Because we only have to find, realistically, to get four extra games, you only have to find two more weeks. Because if you take out the... That's right, yeah, fantastic point, Adam. Um, but if you take away, say, the pre-finals buy and you take away the mid-season buys, mm. that's two, and then you only have to find two more weeks to get your extra yeah. four games in. So yeah. you could be done by the middle of October, but I think March is, if you get the ground situation sorted, the, the, the grand final's still on the last Saturday of September, traditionists will love that, and then then you're away. So oh, I'm, I'm pretty strong on this. I think it's, it makes sense. Players love playing. Everyone hates pre-season. Uh, two months should definitely be fit enough to get them up and going. And the other thing, it puts the onus on the player to be professional in their preparation away from the club. So the onus will be a, a lot more on them to come back through December, early January in peak physical condition, which we've seen they can do through this COVID shutdown period. The onus is going to be on, on them to come back in shape, ready to roll. But looking at this year, we we're ready to play games by the start of Feb. Yeah. Like we, were, we were well advanced in our, in our um, preparation. That's why we went to Geelong and played a game, a scrimmage down there. That's why we went to Carlton and played them before we played JLT games. So the players want to play. They're ready to go. Um, it'll, it might kind of weed out a few of the players who, who aren't as professional So because they're going to have to do a lot of their work away from the club. So... Um, a lot of positives, a lot of efficiencies to be had. Um, hopefully it's something the AFL are considering in this period of time where there's a, there's a mandate for change. I'll march with you on this one. I'll march down, march on AFL House. I'll even create a placard this afternoon just so that I can give us 26. Give us 26 rounds. <laughs> we'll, we'll, Two-man protest as we walk down, down Burke Street. And It'll be powerful. Towards, the, towards Docklands. Well, Riles, you've really, you've really led us into another topic there thinking about protests, very good segue. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement, there's mm -hmm. nothing funny at all about this. Uh, very, very serious issues and, and uh, extraordinary scenes in the US. But it has certainly crossed over with sport, this issue, and that's mm -hmm. nothing new. Um, golly, goes back to salutes at the Olympics and all sorts of stuff. But um, how has it intersected with the Collingwood players this week? Well... Uh, I think I, I think uh, some people will know social media followers will will, uh, will know that three of our players, uh, Travis Varco, uh, Artu Bosinovalagi, and uh, Isaac Quayner, um, sought out our, one of our, our uh, Chino to get a shot taken of the three of them um, in support to, and po and and wanted the club and and to post that shot. The three of them in their Collingwood gear um, so that they could demonstrate their support for uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think, uh, and, and that's a, a, a um, the club supports them in that. Um, 
it, what interests me is that I think we've almost done away with the idea that sport and politics or issues that so-called issues beyond the boundary shouldn't in, shouldn't come together at any to- any point. There was a long time there was a view that sport should remain pure and almost above all of these things. It was a sanctuary, a refuge from the, the ills of the world, the realities. And I think that's debunked. Um, football players, athletes of any kind of humans, they this is that what we've seen in the last week is a very human, universal story. Um, the idea that you can quarantine in an age of living in the COVID quarantine era, but you can quarantine a particular issue from what happens in an athlete's life or tell an athlete that they've got no right to talk about it, an issue of universal significance, Uh, those days are done and so we should get used to the idea that our athletes um, say more, speak up on matters of principle but equally feel a duty to. I think that's one of the things that's changed. We've all seen, most of us have seen the Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan in the 90s, the, the, the biggest, the most you know, well-known, highest-profile athlete on the planet was fearful of making any sort of political statement um, uh, because at that time it was still... People were a little uneasy about the mix of politics and sport. He certainly was. Uh, This week, as a retired, uh, you know, great, uh, perhaps without the endorsement income that he had... uh, the, The threat to his endorsement income to think about, he did support the Black Lives matter movement and talked about the issues that are at play in America at the moment. So, but I think, um, yeah, I think our club um, is not only our, are our athletes, our individual athletes, happy to talk about this. Uh, and, and I will say that our, our the Travis Varco, Artu and Isaac have the support of their teammates and the club. Um, we're now happy to, to um, acknowledge uh, that we have a duty of some description. We get told all the time that players have a responsibility as and they get paid a lot of money to be role models. Well, there they are role modelling behaviour by saying something is wrong and I don't agree with it. I find it very hard for anyone to criticise them on that front. And they've got so many more channels, roles as well now to, to share their, their values and ideas mm-hmm. and thoughts to the world. Obviously, that comes with its own level of scrutiny mm. from from everyone because you, you're exposing yourself there. But I think the players' voices are, are much e- more easily heard these days through through these type of channels, and I think they're more more than willing to share them now, which I think mm. thinks fantastic. And we, we on their own terms, two wax. Yep. They don't they don't need it mediated or interpreted by a third party, which is often where athletes get frustrated. They feel that their intent or precisely what they're trying to say isn't quite captured. And that, but social media, one of the very few benefits of social media, in my view, um, is that it, it's it's uh, it's their words for better and worse. It's it's them that they own completely whatever it is they've they've said, um, and they get they get to own it. And I think um, uh, it's powerful. Um, I think it's, we're seeing. Um, you know, I don't think we would have seen the events of this week if it wasn't for social media because how was the incident in the, that, that set this, this whole, you know, this tinderbox alight, it would not have been captured in 15 years ago pre-mobile phone era with a decent camera. It was captured by a member of the public, 
went viral, suddenly America's a light. Really interesting discussion, boys. It's, um, it's uh, well, it's interesting times always. I'm sure the late uh, Peter Norman would have looked upon the uh, players having a say in this uh, as, as a pretty important thing too, given mm. his involvement way back in the, in the Mexico Olympics days. Well, look at look at and look at how the world now views what they, what he and John Carlos did. They're now seen as heroes. There's statues to them. At the time, they were they were pariahs, you know. And the Olympic movement had no way they couldn't understand that how these athletes would sort of soil the the Olympic name like that. And now it's seen as a as a landmark moment that people admire. Um, it's interesting with the passage of time how perspective changes. It sure is. And boys, just to bring it back to footy before we sign off on the first episode of whatever the name may be of this tremendously backroom back banter. Oh, I'm back. I'm back. Backroom back back banter. It's done. It's done. I've just put my foot in it too, just to keep it open like a good old journo. He's going to pull rank here, Riley. There's nothing surer. Yeah. Now, Wags, it's only a week till we take on the Tigers. What's it actually like, just to give the fans a bit of insight into what this sort of bubble-type setup that's in operation here at Collingwood and all the other 17 AFL clubs uh, at the minute? What's it like around the place? It's a bit bittersweet, Adam. I think it's um, it's so exciting to be back and and being pre- and preparing for a game and preparing for Richmond. We, the irony is we did, we did match committee the Sunday after our Western Bulldogs victory. Uh, for the Richmond game and we, we revisited that a few days ago and that was uh, not much has changed but I guess the thing for us um, that's always in the back of our mind is that we're not we're not a complete footy department at the moment we've got a lot of our our football family who haven't been able to come back and join us and about half the footy department are still still on stand down so they're they're always in our thoughts and uh, yeah we're not complete and it's it's a quiet place around here it's uh uh, the admin side of the building's not back yet, and it's it's definitely not the same. But just seeing the the players go about their business and just being out to interact with each other and the smiles it brings to them just to be able to do what they love um, and that competitive nature that that they bring it's just that that's what really gets you through. Um, and we're very lucky to be back playing. Uh, we we never forget that, and um, it's just that that kind of strange feeling between excitement and also thinking of your mates that that aren't back here uh, back here yet. And Roz, the COVID protocols from from your perspective, still Zoom press conferences with Bucks. How long will that continue for? Do you think? Uh, as long as we're living with the, the restrictions, uh, you know, the restraints that we have in place that, that are in place. I, I don't. Um, it, it's actually, I think, it works well for all concerned. Um, there are no, you know, we don't have to worry about the weather. We don't have to worry about crowds or difficulties. Media congregating and getting themselves in trouble. They all get. They get to. Um, get their say, no one's cut out. Um, yeah, it, it works pretty well and, and um, our fine friends here in digital, the wizard can just, uh, f- we, we, you know, send off a file and everyone's got a clean, beautiful broadcast quality version of the press conferences. So um, my view is, and we actually might take it into match day, I'm thinking that pre-match we might um, uh Put our assistant coaches who would typically go out of the stadium or outside to do up onto the, the ground to do a, a chat with Channel 7 or 9 and 10 outside the stadium on pre-match, what we might do is set them up in the, in the change room or in the press room with the banner behind them, which we've never had the luxury of before, and they can do it off their phones. and do a FaceTime interview with Channel 10 from inside the stadium. Um, it's another asset that, that uh, we can use. So um, I think 
I think it's actually got some benefits that might that might there might be a legacy to this. Um, it might be the way that we do certain, you know, meet certain media obligations from here on in. I like it. Tough times produce great innovations. Mm-hmm. And thank you to the wizard, the great Lukey Windsor, for his technical mastery to get this podcast. Next time, turn your phone off, mate. I know you're very popular. You must. You got more text messages today I, I, than I get in a year. I'm, I, I think uh, the Wizards Harry Potter outfit though is a bit over the top. I mean, we the name the Wiz is one thing, but Double to dre- come in with a with a sort of a cape on and and uh, one of those pointy hats, uh, Hogwarts style's a bit much. <laughs> Thanks to the great man. Well, that'll do us. For this week, very nice start to the podcast that currently has no name but could well be called Backroom Banter or the Football Fountain. Stephen Riley, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Look forward to chatting with all next week. And Marcus Wagner from the footy department. Thank you, Wags. Thank you, Adam. And it's just a pleasure to see Riley back behind the wheel. It's just like riding a bike. It's underutilised resource in the in the media world. Stephen Riley, he's, he's gone to the other side of the fence, but he's very quick to tell us about his uh, his old days where his match reports, I think I think Riley said he got chased down by a, by a team um, who thought they had a leak within their footy department because Riley's analysis of their game plan <laughs> was so succinct and accurate that they thought they had a leak, but it was just Riley, Riley and his genius football knowledge. Uh, I think tactics in that day were, were a bit like, you know, they marched out Roman centurions and, and they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, line by line. It wasn't all that difficult, but uh, uh, yes, it was a very, very long time ago, Wags. But it's a uh, pleasure seeing you back behind the wheel though anyway, Riles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, lads. Thank you, Adam. Outstanding. Outstanding.